So this morning's reading is Nehemiah chapter 13, which can be found on page 488 in the Church Bibles. Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God, with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds which I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah, in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? 
Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favour, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them swear in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times, and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. In 1975, the rock band Queen uh, produced their world-famous hit, Bohemian Rhapsody, and it's estimated to be uh, the third best-selling uh, single in the UK of all time, selling over two and a half million copies. I'm sure many of you here would have, um, if not all of you, would have heard of it. It starts by asking, is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. But it concludes by, by saying that nothing really matters. Anyone can see, nothing really matters, nothing really matters to me. That may have been written in the 1970s, uh, but the idea that, that nothing really matters um, was nothing new. The, uh, the French existentialist philosopher Albert Camus had, had taught that, that life was absurd and so everything was meaningless. The, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche had taught that there was no God. It, it didn't really matter how we lived. And, and in popular culture more recently, the, the Dutch uh, uh, singer Mr. Probs has recently released a song called Nothing Really Matters. In the lead-up to the American presidential election, 
Donald Trump had been heavily criticized for how he'd lived in the past. And yet, the American people still voted for him. In an age of post-truth and alternative facts, people begin to wonder, you know, does it really matter how we live after all? But the good news of the Bible is that you do matter. How you live matters a great deal because God created you for a relationship with himself. You have profound significance, and so how you live does matter. As Russell Crowe says in, in Gladiator, a bit of an old film now, but he says, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. How we live now has eternal significance. And living for God is freedom, not slavery. It is what we were created to be. God calls all people everywhere to be restored to himself. Now, if you've been here the, the last few weeks, weeks, you'll know that we've been working our way through uh, the book of Nehemiah in the Bible. And we're finishing our series today in chapter 13. After God's people had been exiled all over Babylon... He'd brought them back, and Nehemiah had helped them to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. And we saw last week that God had made a covenant with his people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And he'd given them rest. They could enjoy the relationship with God that they were created for. And the people affirm their desire to turn back to God, and they rejoice. But the question remains, does it really matter how they live. I mean, after all, God had restored them to Jerusalem. He'd rebuilt their temple. They've got city walls. I mean, what is there left to do apart from celebrate? Well, if you were here last week, you'll remember uh, trying to imagine yourself being in a car on the M4, driving towards Bristol, but needing to get back to London. And in that situation, the way to get back to London is to turn around. See, no, no amount of wishing you could be back in London, kind of on, on the way to Bristol, but, but imagining yourself there, getting excited about being there, can get you back to London. You have to turn around. And being restored to God involves a change of direction. It involves turning around. Rather than living with ourselves as king, it lives with God as king. It's what the Bible calls repentance, turning back to God. And, and so how we live matters profoundly because it's going to determine our eternal destination. See, if you drive towards Bristol, you will never get to London. And if you, if you don't turn back to God, you can't enjoy the relationship with him that you were created for. Now, I guess it's obvious in everyday life, isn't it? If you have an argument with your friend or, or a child or a parent and you, you kind of walk away from each other, you can't enjoy your relationship. Perhaps that's happened to you already this morning. Perhaps it's something that's happened that, that you need to be restored to that other person. Adrian's already mentioned the Protestant reformer Martin Luther, uh, who nailed his 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg uh, 500 years ago. And what he wrote then is as important then as it is now. He started with this statement. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent... He intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. See, turning back to God is not a kind of thing you do once and then forget about it. It's something we do every day. It's the direction of our lives. That's why we're going to have a time of confession a bit later in the service. Not, not because we want to beat ourselves up, but because we want to be restored to the God who made us. It's wonderful news that, that even though we turn our back on God and walk away, 
he invites us to turn back to him. So have a look at Nehemiah chapter 13 in your Bibles at the passage that we read. Nehemiah chapter 13 is all about the the, the need for God's people to turn back to him. Now, you, you might be slightly puzzled as to why Nehemiah finishes this way, partly because some of the events in chapter 13 seem to have happened in the past, even before chapter 12. So, so have a look at chapter 13, verse 4. Chapter 13, verse 4, it says, Now before this, or verse 6, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. It possibly suggests that, that this was taking place back in chapter 2, when Nehemiah had kind of gone to the king and then gone to explore uh, Jerusalem while he was inspecting the, the walls. So what, why has the author placed some of these events at the end of the book of Nehemiah instead of before? I mean, w- wouldn't it make sense to do, do it chronologically? So uh, they end with a city wall rebuilt, rejoicing, and then kind of walking off into the sunset. That, that, that would make more sense, wouldn't it? I think chapter 13 is here to show us that repentance is not easy. Repentance doesn't come to any of us naturally. All of us naturally go our own way. Why is the company Apple uh, so successful? Why did their iPhone 7 sell so well over Christmas, apparently? Well, partly because it's all about me. The I in iPhone reminds me that I can live how I want. Turning back to God... Is hard. So you, you might think that after the celebrations of, of chapter 12, that, that it would all be plain sailing from them. But in ending with chapter 13, Nehemiah shows that, that the wall was not enough. The people's hearts needed changing. And our hearts need changing too. So there are two things I want us to see from this passage. And the first and main point is that God demands real repentance. And within this point, you'll have it on the, on the back of the sheet if, if you'd like. Within this point, we'll look at repentance in his church, in our priorities, and in marriage and family life. So repentance in his church, and that's from verses 1 to 14. But have a look with me at chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Amorite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into the blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. The, the people read from, from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verse 3 to 5, and they, they realized that they'd been disobeying God. They'd been turning away. They'd been going their own way. They'd been marrying and and accepting people from the Moabites and the Amorites who worshipped pagan gods. And these were enemies of God's people. We'll think a bit more about intermarriage in in, in verse 23 a bit later. But but remember what we said last week, if you were here. It's not that that God was was racist or kind of very insular and not very outward-looking. It's that the Amorites and the Moabites worshipped pagan gods. Far from helping God's people to turn back to him, they would have led them astray. And we get an example of that, of leading God's people astray in verse 4 to 14. Eliashib, that priest, was related to Tobiah, who was an Amorite. 
And you, you might remember him from chapter 2 and chapter 4. With Sam Ballot, uh, he was one of the people that opposed the rebuilding of the walls. And this guy, Tobiah, he uses his position, perhaps in the family, uh, in relationships, to get himself a large chamber in verse 5, which used to be uh, used to house all the temple offerings. Imagine that. All the grain and the frankincense, wine and oil are all stored in order to make offerings at the temple. And Tobiah comes along and says, turning back to God, it's not important. It doesn't really matter. I'll have all of those, thanks very much. And I'm going to just move in here. I'll put my bed in here. I'll put my wardrobe in here. I'll just set up home here. That'll be fine. Thanks very much. No wonder Nehemiah is angry in verse 8. He, he throws Tobiah and all of his furniture out of the temple. Perhaps a bit like Jesus driving the money lenders out of the temple in John chapter 2. And Nehemiah confronts the officials in verse 11. He says, why is the house of God forsaken? Why have, you stopped off, uh, worship? Why, why have the offerings stopped? Why have you allowed Tobiah to push all of the Levites and singers out to the fields? And he delegated responsibility to people he could trust. Verse 13 He appointed treasurers, people who are reliable. See, Nehemiah doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't hear their excuses. He doesn't say, don't worry, this is the 5th century BC. Nothing really matters. Live how you want. He calls them to turn back to God, and he makes sure they do. And we've said before last week that since Jesus has come, the place that God dwells is not a temple or a physical place, but rather it's in us, his church, the people. And God tells us in the New Testament to care about the local church, to give financially, to give of our time and energy, to get rid of corrupt leaders, to appoint reliable people who will make sure that as a church we're turning back to God. Nehemiah isn't kind of embarrassed about appointing treasurers uh, in verse 13 to to make sure that that God's people are able to worship him. But God's not not after our money. He he owns it already. He's after our hearts. He wants us to turn back to him in our attitude towards the local church. So I wonder what you think of Grace Church Dulwich. Is it just a, a social club? quaint tradition, something that, that can kind of get pushed out when our diaries get too full. Well, obviously, God knows how much time each of us has here, but the ch- local church is the primary way that we're going to keep going as Christians, the way that we encourage other people, hear from God's word, and enjoy the relationship with God that we were created for in community. And because repentance is hard, we need each other. We can't do the Christian life alone. So God demands real repentance in his church. Secondly, God demands real repentance in our priorities. And that's from verses 15 to 22. We we, we touched on the Sabbath last week, but but in chapter 13, we get a greater sense of some of the temptations of God's people just to be like the nations around them. Have a look at verse 15. People are treading grapes, trading grain, figs, and wine, and bring it into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Remember, God's people were supposed to be different from the nations around them. People were supposed to look at them and say, what? What? Why would you not make money on the Sabbath? 
What could possibly be more important for this Sabbath of yours than, than making money? What could possibly be more important than, than getting the best deal on my freshly picked grapes or figs? And the people, God's people, would talk about creation, how, how God had made them for a relationship with himself. They, they'd talk about the Exodus, how God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And they'd talk about the Sabbath and how it pointed forward to the new creation, the internal rest that God had promised. That, that was what was supposed to happen. But instead, God's people in Nehemiah's day, they, they want to know whether they should switch supermarkets from Tesco to Sainsbury's, whether, whether getting food delivered to their homes is as good as choosing it from the, the market. And Nehemiah says, look, your priorities are completely wrong. It was exactly this sort of attitude that led to the, the exile in Babylon in the first place. So have a look at verse 17. Nehemiah confronts the officials again and he says, what is this evil thing you are doing? It wasn't an arbitrary law. The Sabbath showed their priorities. It showed what was important. And for Nehemiah, turning back to God was everything. It really did matter. So in verse 19, he gives orders for the city gates to be shut the whole of the Sabbath. In verse 20, some merchants lodge outside the city walls And he threatens to remove them if they don't leave, as he did to Tobiah, kicked him out the the temple. They don't need much persuasion, such as Nehemiah's zeal. Verse 21, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Nehemiah's determined that people turn back to God. Now, we we said last week, didn't we, that Sabbaths in the Old Testament are not the same as Sundays uh, in in our day. Uh, Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. And although, although Christians disagree about how Sundays should be used, they're really about our priorities. Is your stomach more important to you than your relationship with God? Does your, does your bank balance determine how you spend your time? Do you look and think and act just like the people around you? God calls us to real repentance in our priorities. Thirdly, God calls us to real repentance in marriage and family life. And this is from verse 23 to 31. Have a look down with me at verse 23. In those days, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. We saw last week that God had specifically commanded his people not to uh, get married uh, in, in, in Exodus chapter 34 and Deuteronomy 7, not to get married to the, the foreign nations around them who worshipped pagan gods. Uh, again, this wasn't, this wasn't because God was racist or he, he was not very outward looking. I mean, he, his whole plan had been for his people to be a light to the nations, for the nations around to see how good he was so that they would come to know him. But it was so that the nations wouldn't lead God's people astray. And Nehemiah is furious with them. And he explains in in verse 26. Verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. And the point is, if if Solomon was led astray, how much more you and I? I mean, do do we think we're greater than Solomon? 
One of the ways in which intermarrying in Nehemiah's day was so destructive was the problem of language. As he says in, in, in verse 24, if you couldn't speak Hebrew, if you couldn't read Hebrew, you couldn't read the Hebrew Bible. And therefore, you couldn't hear God's word. It meant a whole generation of your children who spoke pagan languages rather than Hebrew would be cut off from the relationship with God that they were created for. It really did matter. Not, not just about getting married, but also for their children. Now, obviously, today, that the, problem of ma- uh, the, the problem of language is not the same. But marrying someone who's not a Christian can cause, cause problems. And the New Testament does say that we should only marry someone who is already a Christian. Now, as we said last week when we, we touched on this, it's a very difficult and, and sensitive topic. And importantly, it doesn't apply to you if you're already married. So, so God says that we should stay married. So, so if you're married to someone who's not a Christian, brilliant. Stay married. God says to, to use opportunities to point people to him. But if you're thinking about who to marry in the future, remember driving on the motorway. One person's driving to Bristol, one person's driving to London. You can't be in the same car. Living with ourselves as king or living with God as king is to go in two very different directions. But it's not just about who you marry. It's also about what you teach your children. The, the, the children who spoke the language of Ashdod, I mean, they got the impression that the God of the Bible didn't really matter very much because no one ever taught them Hebrew. I wonder what impression your children get from you. Do, do you teach them about Jesus? Do, do you make it clear to them that, that the God of the Bible matters a great deal and that living for him is what we were created for? Well, perhaps you're, perhaps you're sitting here and you can't quite believe what you're hearing. I mean, I mean turning back to God kind of makes sense if you if you want to have a relationship with him. But, but all this seems so extreme. Giving financially to church, caring more about God than our bank balance, and even, even choosing who to marry or what to teach your children based on what God says. I mean, who, who does God think he is to tell me how to live? Perhaps, perhaps I don't mind changing some things in my life, but, but this is way too much. Well, if that's how you feel, then you're in good company. You're not alone. Everyone who's ever lived has found repentance really hard. Everyone who's ever been, been heard God's call to be restored to him through Jesus has found it really difficult from, from Solomon to Nietzsche, from the rock band queen to Mr. Probs. We, we all want to say how I live doesn't really matter. Something inside of us is, is determined to live life our way. It's what the Bible calls sin. My life in my hands. But God calls us to put our lives in his hands, to be restored to the God who made us. And God is so determined to do this that he helps us do what we couldn't do on our own. So we've seen firstly that God demands real repentance in uh, church, in priorities and family life. But secondly, and more briefly, we should pray for God's help to change hearts. That's from verses 14, verse 22, and verse 31. Have a look down with me at verse 14. Nehemiah prays. 
just as he has done in, in chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 5, verse 19, chapter 6, verse 14. And here again in chapter 13, verse 14, we hear Nehemiah coming before God. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out the deeds that I've done for the house of God and for his service. Turn forward to verse 22. Remember this also in favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 31. Remember me, O my God, for good. See, throughout Nehemiah's life, he depends entirely on God, even as he urges people to turn back to God. Because he, he knows that however good his security at the gates is, however much he keeps telling people to, to turn back to God, he can't change their hearts. Although he commits his work to God, he asks in verse 22 to be spared according to the greatness of your steadfast love. This is God's covenant love, the covenant that the people affirmed in chapter 10. And the good news is it doesn't depend entirely on us. See, God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. God promises a new covenant where he would change people's hearts. Now imagine um, that you've been smoking, eating unhealthily, and doing very, very little exercise for the past few decades. Hope that that doesn't apply to anyone here. But imagine that's the case, and eventually you have a heart attack. And you go into hospital, and it, and it turns out that your heart is failing. It's not pumping nearly anywhere as, as good as it should be. And, and you're eventually discharged, and you're told to kind of stop smoking, do some exercise, and, and eat healthily. But, but change is really hard. I mean, cigarette cravings are so strong. Those sugary snacks taste so good. And, and walking is just such an effort. And your breathing is difficult, and you, you just think this is way too much. So you, you carry on as before until you have another heart attack. And this one's even more serious, but you survive. And it turns out you need a heart transplant, and miraculously, one is available in the next few days. And after the heart transplant, you're discharged from hospital, you're told to stop smoking, to eat healthily, to do some exercise, and walking is a lot easier. You can change the direction of your life. But you've got a choice. You've been given a new heart, You've been told to turn around and go a different way. What are you going to choose? You're going to choose to live differently. And God, through his spirit, has given us new hearts. He says in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, he promises a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The Old Testament was pointing forward to the day when God's people would be able to turn back to him in repentance because God would put his spirit in their hearts. In John chapter 14, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to his disciples to help them turn back to God, to live his way. Perhaps you're you're here and you've never really turned back to God. You've always lived by the mantra, nothing really matters. Not in terms of my relationship with God anyway. Perhaps you you know that you need to be restored to the God who made you, but but you're not really sure if you can. You're not really sure where to start. Well, start by praying that God would give you his spirit so that you'd actually want to turn around, so that you would stop putting your life in your own hands and instead put your life in God's hands. Well, perhaps you're here and you've been a Christian for for a while. You've you've turned back to God in the past, but, but over the last few months or the last few years, You've just been 
been kind of pretending, going through the motions. You've, you've lost the joy of being restored to God. There are areas of your life that you know you haven't turned back to him in. Well, remember that living for God is freedom, not slavery. It's what we were created for. Choose to go his way. Turn around. He's given you a new heart by his spirit. The American Christian pastor, uh, A.W. Tozer, is famously reported as saying that if, Christ, uh, that if Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. To, to follow Jesus with only some of your heart, only some of your priorities, only some of your life, is not ultimately to follow him at all. He doesn't call us to be perfect, but he calls us to change direction, to come back to him with all of our heart, with all of our priorities, all of our life. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you that you created us for a relationship with yourself. Thank you that even when we turn away from you, you call us back to yourself through Jesus. Thank you that real repentance is freedom, not slavery. Help us to turn back to you in every area of your life by your spirit at work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.